Well, friends, as we have been moving through 1 John, we are taking a look now at the fifth chapter of 1 John all summer long. And I'm going to ask, before we, before we open God's word, I'm going to ask that we just bow our heads and we pray, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us whatever it is that God has to say to us this, this morning. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we, we praise you. We thank you for the, the things that you have already done in our lives, opening our hearts and our minds to your presence right here in this place. And I pray that as we go to your word this day, that you would open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have to teach us this day. Where we need comforted, might we be comforted? Where we need challenged, maybe, may we be challenged. But most of all, Lord, may we be attentive to your desires for us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, I... Uh, I bought myself a weed whacker. I was really proud of myself for picking this thing out. And I put it together, poured, it, poured in the gasoline, mixed in the oil, primed the pump, pulled the string multiple times, and I got it running, and I finally got out to do some weed whacking that was very desperately needed to be done where we were living at the time. We were living in Pittsburgh. Well, I used that weed whacker regularly for about a month, and then one day, no matter what I did, I could not get it to stay running. It would maybe go for about five minutes or so, but then right after that, it would just sort of sputter out and die. And I, and I was like, what in the world am I doing wrong? I knew I, I, knew I wasn't doing anything wrong, but why couldn't I get this, this, get this thing going? So I finally you know, did some research. I looked up the make and model, only to discover that I had purchased one of the worst possible weed whackers you could possibly purchase on the market. And right then and there, I lost complete confidence in this machine that I had in my garage. And without any confidence in its ability to work, I barely touched it. I hardly used it. And eventually, I just got rid of it. When you lack confidence in something or someone, we lack our ability to trust them. We lack our ability to rely on whatever the thing might be. Maybe it's a weed whacker. Maybe you have an old car that you just have no confidence in. Maybe there's a person in your life you know, as we've been working through the letter of 1 John all summer long, one of the reasons why the Apostle John wrote this letter to a group of early Christians was because he wanted them to know and experience a growing and an accumulated confidence in who Jesus is. John wants this early church to experience and come to know what it means to be confident in who Christ is and in who we are in Christ. We've looked at all types of themes from assurance to being children of God and on and on and on throughout this book. And it's all John's trying to help us enter into what it means to be confident children of God who seek to worship God through Jesus Christ the Son. But John knows something. And we know this too, if we're honest. John knows that confidence doesn't just come out of nowhere, does it? I know we, we might wish we could just snap our fingers and then suddenly feel confident about ourselves, but we know that's not how it works. Confidence, rather, comes and relies on testimonies. Confidence comes from the testimony or the witnesses or the experience of something that tells you that what you're seeking to put your confidence in is indeed reliable. I, had, I have confidence in the new weed whacker that I bought because every time I use it, I can get it to run. We have confidence in all sorts of things that we take for granted all the time because every time we go to, to see them or use them, they do their job. They testify to their reliability. 
you don't realize how much confidence you have in, say, your refrigerator until it breaks down, right? Well, today, as John is exploring a little bit more about what it means to have confidence in the Son of God and Jesus Christ, he names three witnesses, three things that testify to who Jesus is, to the reliability of who Jesus is. And these testimonies are meant to give us a growing confidence in Jesus, that we really can depend on him and rely on him as the Son of God. Now, hang with me here as I read this text, because the witnesses that John names, frankly, they're a bit cryptic. And when you hear me read this this text, you might actually be scratching your head thinking, what in the world did he just say? Some scholars have actually said that this, this, these verses have some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. But we're not going to shy away from that, right? And so let's dive in. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 6. 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 6, and we'll be reading through verse 12. John writes, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So what were the three witnesses that John mentions? Did you catch them? The three witnesses that John mentions that testify to the Son of God. He, he names them in verse 6, and then he kind of lists them all in straight order there in verse 7. Let's look at verse 6 again, the very beginning. Verse 6, he says this. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Okay, so what in the world does John mean? By spirit, water, and blood. Those are the three witnesses that he mentions in this text, okay? These three things that testify to who Jesus is. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, those of you who perhaps grew up in the church, you probably know who the spirit is. John's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying that the Holy Spirit testifies to who, who that Jesus is, okay? And the Holy Spirit, as Christians, we believe, is a part of the triune God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is God himself testifying to who Jesus is. But then there's these other witnesses that John mentions. He mentions the, the testimony of the water and the blood. They're a little bit more cryptic, right? What are they? You know, some people... There's a number of options out there. Some people think that the water represents um, our baptisms and the blood represents communion, the sacrament of Holy Communion. Other people, they think that the water and the blood here actually is this combined statement talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And they say it's because when Jesus' side was, was pierced with a spear, water and blood came out of it. Other people, they say that water represents Jesus' birth. 
and that the blood represents, again, his death. But most of the scholars that I read about this, and I agree with them, they say and, and, and that there's the most evidence that the water is actually representing Jesus' baptism. And the blood refers to Jesus' death. All right, so you got that? The water, the testimony of the water is the baptism of Jesus, and the testimony of the blood is the death of Jesus. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. I have no idea why John just didn't say that. No idea. Whenever you meet John someday in heaven, you go right up and ask him. I'm going to have, I'll have other questions. I'll be asking other people. But if you want to know why is it that John just didn't come out and say, this is the baptism of this and blood, I, I don't know. But nevertheless, we're going to keep moving on with that understanding that the water is the baptism of Jesus and the blood is the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now let's look briefly at each of these. Let's look, let's look at the testimony of water. So 1 John 5, 6a, this is what he says. He says, this is the one, he's talking about Jesus, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, you may or may not know the story of Jesus' baptism, okay? If you don't know it, you can read about it in Mark chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. You can flip there and you can read a short story about Jesus' baptism by his cousin John the Baptist. Now, the baptism of Jesus marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So, in fact, that's why John actually says that the one came by water. The water is the launching pad, the beginning. The baptism of Jesus was the, the launch pad, if you will, to the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's what makes it so significant. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry is when he is baptized. Now, Here's how Mark actually tells it. Right after Jesus is baptized, there's this incredible event that occurs. Um, you have, uh, you're going to see verse 11. I'm going to read verses 9, 10, and 11. This is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark says this. He says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And then what comes next? A voice came from heaven and declared, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Th this moment of Jesus' baptism, right from the beginning, there's this voice from God, God himself testifying to who Jesus is. And his baptism is an event where God himself, therefore, publicly declares, publicly testifies that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a testimony from God himself declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus' baptism, the testimony of water, testifies that he is indeed the Son of God. But then John moves on and he mentions this other testimony. He says the testimony of the blood. And take a look at uh, 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 verse 6b, okay, where John brings up the blood. He says, he did not come by water, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now that's interesting. Why would he say it that way? Why didn't John just say he, he came by water and the blood? But no, notice, he specifically phrases this sentence to make sure he's emphasizing the testimony of the blood. He says he did not come by water only, right? Like knowing that many people are going to latch on to that one and just want to focus on the water. He did not come by water only, says John, but by water and, right? He's trying to make sure that we don't forget this one. He came by water and the blood. Now this is interesting. Why does John do this? Well, here's, first of all, 
a lot of people are willing to accept the testimony of the water. A lot of people are willing to accept Jesus' baptism. But they're not willing to accept Jesus' death. They're not willing to accept the testimony of Jesus' blood. And this was true in the early church and it's still in, in the early first century and we still struggle with this today in various ways. You see, here's why. First of all, Jesus' baptism, as I said, was the beginning of his earthly ministry. And those of you who have read the stories of Jesus in the gospel, what did Jesus do in his earthly ministry? He went right into these incredible acts demonstrating the kingdom of God, right? He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of people with, with hardly anything. He welcomed children. He forgave sinners. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors, Democrats and Republicans, Steelers and Browns fans. He welcomed them all. He ate in their homes. He proclaimed a, a kingdom of, the kingdom of God and preached a message of repentance. Lots of people love that about Jesus. In fact, the only people in the Bible who didn't like that about Jesus were the professional religious people because it threatened them. But so many people loved this part about Jesus. And in fact, we should too. We should also seek to love and emulate this aspect of Jesus' ministry in the kingdom of God. So why is Jesus, or excuse me, why is John emphasizing the blood? Because back in John's day, and yes, even today, a lot of people want that Jesus that we see launching from his baptism into that ministry. A lot of us want that part of Jesus. We just don't want the cross. We want to pick and choose what we like about Jesus. And so we pick and choose those stories about Jesus that we really, really like because they make us feel really good inside. And we really want to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't mean that we have to follow him to a cross. We want a Messiah, just not a crucified Messiah. You see, in the ancient world, in the, in the, in the world where John was writing to, crucifixion was single-handedly the most shameful and disgraceful way that you could die. B by a mile. The most dishonorable way that you could possibly die was to be crucified. And as a result, so many people in the ancient world struggled to accept that Jesus was the Messiah simply because he died on a cross. It was foolishness to their ears. It made no sense in their mind to say that the Son of God had been crucified was a complete oxymoron. It, it automatically would disqualify you to be considered the Messiah, the Son of God. That those two things were totally incompatible, to be known as the Son of God and to be crucified. Now, in today's day and age, you know, our, our culture, you and I, many of us are fine with accepting the fact that Jesus was crucified. We accept that as a historical event, as something that truly did occur. So we accept that Jesus was crucified as long as it doesn't affect us, as long as it's something that just stays in the past. We forget that if Jesus is indeed a crucified Messiah, it means that he was crucified for a reason. It means that he was crucified for, for us, for you, for me. Many of us, we want the cross to be this historical event that we sing songs about, but we don't want anyone to tell us that we're a sinner that somebody needs to die for. 
Don't, don't tell us that we deserve condemnation for our sins. Don't tell me that Jesus had to die for me. Don't tell me that I need to put my sins to death on that cross as well. I don't want to hear that I need saved. I don't want to hear that I need rescued. I don't want to hear that I need forgiven. I want to be fine just the way I am. And as a result, we end up ignoring the truth that Jesus is indeed the crucified Son of God who came to take away the sins, our sins, of the world. In the first century, many assumed that the cross testified against Jesus. If you heard someone talk about the testimony of the blood, they would have said, well, that disproves him, disqualifies him. But the Bible asserts the opposite. The, the, the Bible, time after time after time again, says that the cross, the testimony of the blood, is the place where we see the most profound and amazing and radical and mysterious and far-reaching and most extensive demonstration of the love of God in the history of the universe. Now, we, I, don't, we, I don't have this for you in the PowerPoint, but this is what the Apostle Paul says in the, in the Philippians chapter 2. I love this. He's getting at this, this idea of just how radical the cross is through it all. He says, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. Jesus took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you hear that last line that Paul says? It's not just that Jesus died. It's that he was willing to die even on a cross. The testimony of the blood is the death of Jesus, and that testifies that he indeed did come to take away the sins of the world. And when that event occurred, when the cross truly took place, the world as we know it was totally transformed. The Holy Spirit was at work causing earthquakes and, and darkness to descend, and the temple curtain was torn in two as, as, God, as the very universe itself was testifying to the fact that the Son of God has just died on a cross. The testimony of the water is the baptism of Jesus. The testimony of the blood is the death of Jesus, that he is indeed the Son of God. John then says in the end of verse 6, he, says, he mentions the testimony of the Spirit. He says it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. John is wrapping up and just saying, look, all of these things are God's testimony. This is the Holy Spirit, God himself, testifying to who Jesus is. If you read through the book of Acts, you know, go home, read through the book of Acts, you will see the Holy Spirit testifying over and over and over and over again just who just Jesus is, that the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord of all. There's this amazing statement, I love this, in, in chapter 5 of Acts where the disciples are being questioned for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Okay, They're brought in for questioning and they're, start, they're asking them, like, are you going to continue talking about this man, Jesus? We don't want you to, so quit doing it. And they say, they say look, we, we can't not talk about this. Why? Acts 5.32, they say, we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit. Right? I love that. In other words, not only are we witnessing to who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to who Jesus is all the time. In fact, we're, we're just, our responsibility as the church is to be obedient to the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
We are seeking to discern the activity and the presence of the Holy Spirit and to enter into that activity and presence because it's the Holy Spirit doing the work of witnessing to who Jesus is. We're just along for the ride. So John just ex then explains those three, that these three testimonies, these three witnesses, if you will, the Spirit, the blood, and the water, that they agree with one another about who Jesus is. He says this in verse 7 through 9. He says, there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he's given about his Son. Here, John's just, he's trying to pull all this together and say, look, those three various test witnesses, they're unified in what they're trying to proclaim. They don't disagree with one another. This isn't like, you know, taking three different people in different rooms and they all have different stories about who Jesus is and we're trying to figure out, okay, where, where do they overlap? No, these are three testimonies all in unity as to who Jesus is. They're, they're saying the same thing, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. So John asserts that these three testimonies agree, and then it kind of raises this question. That's where, this is where John goes to next in verse 10. So what does that mean for us, right? If, they, if we have these witnesses testifying to who Jesus is, what are the implications for you and I? He says in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Do you see the train of thought here? Whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Now, I know, you know, when I read it, when I read it like that, it sounds just kind of like monotone at times. But if you really step back and take a look at what John's writing, he's being really blunt. He's being really blunt. He's presenting a testimony about Jesus in black or white terms. He's saying, look, you can either accept this testimony that he's the son of God, or you can reject it. Now, this is another thing that is often difficult for our ears to hear, especially in the American West, right? We don't like to hear things put in black and white terms very often. But what happens in our culture is that we tend to take our religious beliefs, and we do this in the church as well. Many of us do it all the time. We take our religious beliefs, and we put them in the same category as our values or opinions, okay? And so what ends up happening is, this question of whether or not we, that we believe in Jesus, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we actually kind of think about that decision and we put it in the same bucket, if you will, as we think about whether, how we choose our favorite sports team or how we decide what our favorite TV show is or, or what school district we want to live in, right? And on and on and on. And as a result, you know, when you think about it, the question, who's your favorite baseball team, there's not really a wrong answer to that question. All that matters in our culture is, are you sincere about it, right? If you, you, know, if you say you root for a so-and-so team and you don't actually you know, live it, then people say, no, that's not true. All we care about is sincerity. We want to make sure that people really mean what they say. And as a result, we throw our religious beliefs into that same kind of category where we say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. You just have to really you know, mean it in your heart or something along those lines. And as a result, what ends up happening is that these testimonies that people are giving about the Son of God, rather than them being this, this testimony as to the truth one way or the other, we look at it as just sort of this, this 
optional opinion that we can choose from one way or the other. I can believe them or not. As if somebody were to come and say, let me give you all the reasons why the Pirates are the best baseball team. And you might listen to all of their explanations and say, I totally disagree with you, right? We do the same thing many times when it comes to our beliefs about Jesus. John is saying that these these witnesses, they're not giving their opinions about who Jesus is. They're instead trying to state a factual statement about who Jesus is. He's either the Son of God, or he isn't. This isn't an opinion category, but that's what we want it to be. He's either the Son of God, or he isn't, says John. And so what are the options before us? Well, option one is to believe in the Son of God. When, when John says believe in the Son of God, I love this, believe is in, is, is in the present tense, okay? And what that means is, belief in the Son of God is not something that you did in the past and now it's over. Belief in the Son of God is a continual, ongoing, growing allegiance to Jesus. It's something you do every day. You believe in the Son of God every time you wake up. It's, this, it's not just a decision in the past. It's this ongoing, ongoing effect that has ramifications in your future life as well. The person who believes in the Son of God, says John, experiences this as a result. Verse 11, John says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now notice, eternal life has already been given to those who accept the testimony. Those of us who do indeed believe that Jesus is the Son of God are given eternal life. And it's not this, you will one day get eternal life. No, look at the verbs. He says, he has given eternal life. It's already been given to you when you believe. Eternal life, for those of us who believe in the Son of God, does not start the day you die. It starts the day you believe. You have already received eternal life. You are living eternal life now. This is very similar to what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He says in John 10, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, right? He wants you to experience this fullness of eternity today. The first option when it comes to accepting these testimonies is to, is to believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and to experience this eternal life that is given to us today. But option two, says John, is to reject the testimony. It's to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He says this at the latter half of verse 10, 10b. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. Notice, John says, if you don't believe the testimonies, you're making God out to be a liar. This is God testifying to who Jesus is. If, if, If you were in a court of law, and somebody stood on the witness stand and gave their testimony, and we stand up and we said, we don't believe them, well, what are we saying? We're saying that they lied in court. That they're lying, that they're a liar. To, not re- to, to, to reject the testimony that God has given as to who Jesus is, says John, is basically saying that you are telling God, is li- telling God that he's lying as to who Jesus is. Now, some people like to say, well, it's not that I want to reject Jesus as the Son of God. I, I don't mind Jesus. I like Jesus. Jesus was a great teacher. But John is here just urging us, trying to say, no, that's not enough. This was not a testimony as to whether Jesus was a good teacher. This wasn't a testimony as to whether Jesus was a cool guy to hang out with. 
This is a testimony about whether or not Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the, the one who will lead all of us to eternal life. That's what the testimony is about. Not whether or not Jesus is a cool guy. It's about whether or not he is who he says he is. And rejecting that testimony, says John, leads to this. Verse 12b, he says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I mean, if, if you really step back and see what John is doing, he's being so blunt with his language. But he's doing that because he wants us to feel the urgency. Do we actually believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And if so, what are we doing about it? You know, one of the things that we've said many times at Charter Oak Church is that we want to be disciple makers. Disciple makers essentially means that we want to be people who share the gospel with others. And I want you to think about this. If the testimonies of what John is saying are true, that there is a man named Jesus who claims to be the son of God and offers us life, if only we believe in him, but those who reject him do not have life. If that is true, then what that means is part of our responsibility as the church is to continue the testimony, to dive into the testimony of what God did many, many years ago and continue to share that testimony with others so that they too might have the, 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 the ability, the option, the choice to either accept or reject Jesus as the Son of God. Part of our responsibility as the church is to report the good news of what Jesus did and the trust that the Holy Spirit is at work. You know, it's been said that the church doesn't fail if somebody is not converted. But the church fails if they don't share the gospel. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to change people's hearts. It's our job to be faithful and to proclaim the gospel to those who will listen. So who is one person that God's calling you to share the gospel with? Who is one person that God's calling you to agree with the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit? Who is God calling you to share the good news with? Is it a coworker? Is it an old friend? Is it a family member? Is it a neighbor? Is it someone that you know in your life who is suffering and struggling and needs to hear hope? I love this quote from Pastor Richard Halverson. He says, he says evangelism, just sharing the good news of Jesus, evangelism is not salesmanship. It's not urging people, pressing them, coercing them, overwhelming them, or subduing them. Evangelism is just telling a message. Evangelism is reporting good news. You know, a similar, perhaps well, more well-known saying goes like this, that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. In other words, it's just a testimony. This is what I have discovered. Here's where you find it. How has coming to believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God changed your life? Just imagine how many people's lives it could change if we just told them about it. One testimony at a time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the testimony of the water and the blood and the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would inspire us this day to be filled with your Holy Spirit so that as we are seeking to proclaim the good news to others that we might do so full of your Spirit. 
May we know that it is not our, under our own power or skill that we seek to share the good news. But it is when we are filled with the presence of the power of your spirit testifying to who you are that we find the words and the courage to speak with boldness and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.